0: Hello, class, and welcome to the final episode of the TM366 Basic Christian Doctrine podcast. I think I may have lost some of you along the way, so if you are listening and you've got friends in the class, you may want to encourage them to at least open up this podcast, because it is exam review day. Now, normally in class, what I do for an exam review is I will lecture through all the content that we've covered to make sure that everybody is up to speed, And following that, I'll take your questions and then do some review exercises. In this context, the review lecture is going to be on podcast, and I've sent out a scheduler last week for a Zoom meeting for a review session where you can ask me questions. I'll also have a group me schedule during the week. Also, feel free to send any emails that you have. All right, on to business. First, let's talk about the exam. It will be available through Canvas, an online format, but otherwise it's going to be virtually the same as exams would normally be in this class. You'll have a number of short answer questions, multiple choice questions, and your choice of essay. If you haven't looked at the final exam study guide yet, make sure that you download that and take a look because it tells you what two essay options you'll get to choose from. Now I will note that this class on the midterm uh, stood out from other classes in that it did pretty strong on uh, short answer questions, but generally speaking, the essays were struggling more than normal. So do make sure that you prepare in advance for those essays. What am I looking for on an essay? Well, first of all, I want a thesis statement and complete sentences. Second of all, I want you to show me as much as you possibly can that you have learned from course content. A number of people slipped up on the midterm because they talked extensively about the Trinity, but did not draw on anything from course content. In other words, you could have taken the test without ever having sat in the class and still submitted the same content. Now, it's totally fine on a personal level to believe or not believe whatever you'd like, but in this case, we're trying to learn the official teachings of various Christian groups. So I do ask that you include course content as much as possible in your essay question to earn points. A final comment on short answer questions. The same as the midterm, if you leave a short answer question blank, it's as if you do not submit an assignment. You get a zero. However, anything that you submit in this class, including a short answer question, will earn you some credit. If you write, excuse me, if you write absolute nonsense, you can still earn one of the 10 points on the short answer for just trying to complete the question and following instructions. The closer you get to the right answer, the more points you can actually earn. So if you don't know the exact right answer, but you know the questions about the Trinity and you know some other uh, content on the Trinity, put that down and you might just earn five or even six out of the 10 points on the short answer question. So Those are my tips for taking the test. On to studying. Let me walk through some of the main content that's going to be on the test. First of all, you need to know the four atonement models. The moral exemplar model, Christus Victor model, satisfaction model, and the penal substitution model. Each model begins by looking at one aspect of the problem of sin. The moral exemplar model begins with the fact that we don't always know right from wrong. Models then offer a solution that fixes that problem. So we don't know right from wrong, but Christ comes and lives as our human example in the flesh so that we now have a role model we can trust. I can't turn to anyone in the class, and none of you can turn to me and have a reliable moral example. But with Christ, we do. The benefit, then, is usually the reversal of the problem that we faced. In the case of the moral exemplar model, we are now no longer ignorant of good and evil, but have a clear example that we can follow in a trustworthy manner. So that's the moral exemplar model. Christus Victor model discusses how we are captive to sin and death, but Jesus defeated sin by living a sinless life and was triumphant over death through the resurrection. As a result, the benefit is through the work of the Holy Spirit, we can start to experience victory over sin now, and moreover, we can hope for a resurrection from the dead in the end. The satisfaction model is the most complicated. It claims that our problem is that we have broken the law and there's a debt to pay. However, everything that we have already belongs to God. We have nothing with which to pay. Fortunately, Christ comes and takes on flesh, And as humanity's representative, gives to God something he did not have to give. That is his life on the cross. This is known as a supererogatory gift, a gift above and beyond what is required. As a result, we receive the benefit of justification, a new status, where we are counted as innocent because of Christ's payment, even though technically we are not. We looked at a number of different theologians that practically applied these models, and I particularly focused on Ignacio e. Ea from El Salvador as a representative of what is known as Latin American liberation theology. Liberation theology believes that Christ's significance is not only spiritual, but also historical, social, and political. Heiacharia argued that Christ died in part because he challenged the economic, political, and religious authorities, and so they executed him. This is one of several emphases of liberation theology. Liberation theology tends to emphasize Christ as a victim. He was innocent, and yet he was killed by the empire. Christ was poor, though he could have chosen to be incarnate in any form. Therefore, liberation theology says that Christ is in solidarity with the poor, and the church should therefore side with the poor as well. This is known as the preferential option for the poor. Whenever there's a social conflict where there are oppressors and oppressed, this principle says that we should side with the oppressed. So that's a bit on liberation theology. And by the way, on each of these subjects, I'm doing a really quick overview for podcast purposes but there's more content. So I really hope you've been listening to podcasts, doing your assigned readings and looking over the powerpoints. Okay. Next we'll talk about union with Christ. Theologians speak of union with Christ as the biblical metaphor and imagery that lies beneath the various steps of the application of the benefits of atonement. So atonement is Christ fixing things for us through the cross through the resurrection. Those things are applied to Christians in various steps or aspects like justification or sanctification. Union is an underlying image that helps us connect all of these aspects together. Now, it's a fairly complicated biblical image. We looked at 73, well, we didn't look at them all, but Paul uses 73 instances of the language of we are in Christ. Kind of vague language and hard to figure out. He uses new words that he invents, known as the sun compounds, because he adds this prefix sun, which means with in Greek. So, in your English translations, you'll see that we are crucified with Christ. We are raised with Christ. We can ask the question what does it mean to say all of these things? And that leads us to the doctrine of union. I walked us through nine dimensions of that doctrine ranging from things like location and identification to eschatology. And I told you during that lecture, no one is required to know all nine of these aspects. What I do want you to do is go back to that lecture or that PowerPoint, and hopefully if you were listening, you've already done this, but pick several of those dimensions that you understand and want to learn. I'll expect you to know three or four by final exam time. Because this image of union is rather complicated and a little bit imprecise, theologians have come along and broken down different aspects of union into distinct concepts that we can analyze more clearly. The concepts that we have covered in class include justification, sanctification, preservation, and glorification. Justification refers to a declaration by God. God declares us innocent and thereby gives us the status of being righteous, of sharing in Christ's identity. Sanctification, on the other hand, refers to the process whereby the Holy Spirit actually changes our nature. It's not about status primarily. Primarily, it's about genuine change in what we are, so that we are no longer sinful and are increasingly good. Preservation is a disputed doctrine that we had to mostly skip. All you need to know is the definition. Preservation is the belief that once we are united with Christ, God will preserve us in that union. In other words, he will keep us joined to Christ so that from the present until the future, we will stay joined so that we are ensured that we will be saved on the last day. In other words, if preservation is true, you cannot lose your salvation. Finally, glorification refers to our final state where we receive the full glory offered to us through salvation. As we move into these doctrines, we start to see major disputes among Christian groups, justification in particular. So one of your essay options is actually going to have the opportunity to address this doctrine of justification and differences between Catholics and Protestants. So I'll flag that. This content is going to be most helpful there. Now, from the Protestant perspective, justification and sanctification can be interpreted through what are known as the old onlys or the solas. You can know the Latin or the English. I'll make sure I have both on anything in the test. Sola fide means faith alone. Sola gratia is grace alone. And solus Christus is Christ alone. According to the Protestant perspective on justification, we can ask the question, what do we need to be saved? And the answer is faith. You don't need works to earn salvation. Then we can ask the question, well, why is it that faith is enough? Our answer here, according to Protestants, must be only grace makes it enough. It's not that God needs faith or is impressed by the quality of our faith Rather, God has graciously said, if you will just trust me, I will save you, even though you have not earned it, and I don't need your trust. Third, okay, well, in that case, if I don't earn it, how am I saved? Protestants answer with solus Christus, only Christ. And here they point back to the satisfaction model of atonement. Only Christ could pay our debts. Only Christ actually did. But his payment is sufficient So only Christ was needed. Since he has offered that payment, if we believe, God graciously counts us as righteous as if we were Christ. That's the Protestant perspective on justification. Now, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church largely split over the question of justification. So I spent some time discussing differences between Protestants and Catholics, There's a full slide at the end of your justification PowerPoint that you can look at for the essay, but everyone in particular needs to know the distinction between imputed and infused righteousness. The idea of imputation refers to being given a status that you did not earn. This is the Protestant perspective. To say that I am justified is to say that I have been called innocent, that I have been labeled righteous, even though nothing about me is innocent or righteous. That's the Protestant perspective. The Catholic perspective understands justification differently. They understand it in terms of infused righteousness. So an infusion is something injected into something, roughly speaking. Infused righteousness is the idea that justification actually makes us holy, makes us just, and makes us like Christ because grace is injected into us, again metaphorically speaking, in a way that it changes what we are. That's one of the biggest debates between Protestants and Catholics, and we only touch the tip of the iceberg on that. So that's, let say, option one. Next option is sanctification. Sanctification confers to us the benefits of atonement— in the three models other than satisfaction. So, for example, Christus Victor says that Christ has given us victory over sin. How do we actually receive that victory? The answer is, we receive it through the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. The Spirit gradually makes us holy so that we are victorious over sin. From a Protestant standpoint, sanctification is also only by faith only by grace and only through Christ. The Roman Catholic Church typically does not use this language because much of the idea of sanctification is incorporated into their understanding of justification. All right, Martin Luther. It's behind many of these debates, particularly surrounding justification. When we turned to our unit, looking at the basic view of the Christian life, we considered a reading by Martin Luther, and you all had to do a worksheet on it, called The Freedom of a Christian. Boiled down to its simplest form, Martin Luther's essay is about this thesis. Because of union with Christ, all Christians are free lords, subject to no one, and yet they are all also called to be dutiful servants, subject to everyone. And he unpacks that paradox in your assigned course reading. Make sure you know that one sentence summary. Well, what about the law then? If we're not subject to anything, can we just go around and do whatever we'd like and be rather awful people? And here many of us may have memories of Christians we've met who are quite atrocious. Hopefully none of you fit that category. This is one of the significant critiques that the Catholic Church raised against Luther's understanding of justification. In response, Lutherans developed three uses of the law. The first use of the law is as a guide for civil government. So it tells us, thou shalt not kill. Governments should embody this, Christians say. They should prevent people from killing. The second use of the law is to drive us to Christ. Luther says, you look at all the details of the law And in my lecture, I discussed the commandment in the Old Testament to redistribute wealth every couple of generations, so everybody has plenty. And then you ask yourself, have I actually lived up to this ideal? To my knowledge, there are hardly any um, individuals in this world who have actually voluntarily lived up to this, even in communist nations where there is wealth redistribution that's usually forced by the state. Well, if you haven't lived up to this standard, and I'm not saying that We should apply it fully in a communist form or anything. But if you haven't radically redistributed wealth to help those in need, you've not lived up to the standard of the law. And therefore, you are a sin. You are in sin. Therefore, you are condemned. When you realize that you can't possibly live up to this, I mean, after all, in a modern economy, if we all redistributed, most people would probably blow the money that we gave them. Um, We would probably not work as hard because we knew we'd have to give it all away soon anyway. Things would probably collapse because of our sinful motivations. We can't fulfill this commandment, and yet that's the perfect standard. Who could? Christ. We actually see in the Bible that he did give up both the riches of heaven to come to earth and whatever material possessions he possessed in order to be a traveling poor preacher spreading the good news of salvation. So that's the second use of the law, the third use of the law, so for governance to drive us to Christ. The third is once you are a Christian, Luther says you follow the law in order to be in order to know what to do, in order to know how to be good. In doing this, Lutherans are rejecting, and pretty pretty much all Christians reject an idea known as antinomianism. Antinomianism is the view that the law, or all the Old Testament rules, have no place in Christian life, and it is rejected. We went back in time a little bit to cover a unit I had to cut from before the midterm as a result of my sickness um, and looked at some interpretations of original sin. Original sin is the idea that because of Adam and Eve, we are today trapped in sin and we will die. But there are different interpretations of this. An interpretation can ask, what is the effect of original sin? And also, why is it that what Adam did affected me? I want to highlight two views for now. The first view is that of original pollution. Original pollution says Adam messed up human nature. He put something something toxic, so to speak, in human nature. And it appeals to an idea known as natural headship, which says, my nature came to me from Adam. Because I'm biologically descended from him. It's not DNA, but metaphorically, sin is passed down kind of like DNA is from parent to parent, or sorry, parent to child. So that is original pollution and natural headship. Another interpretation is that of original guilt. On this view, original sin means that from birth we are viewed as if we have broken the covenant with God. Well, why would that be the case? An answer here. This perspective appeals to what's known as federal headship. You may have heard federal before in terms of the federal government, which is that government held together by a constitution or a covenant. According to this view, Adam and Eve were our representatives in an early covenant with God. He said, do whatever you want, but don't eat this fruit, and in return I will give you eternal life. They disobeyed and ate the fruit, and as a result, they and all of humanity have broken the covenant. So, different interpretations of original sin. We also talked about theological explanations for the fall and the existence of evil and talked about different versions of the problem of evil, logical, evidential, and existential. Several theological explanations for the problem of evil include things like appealing to free will. God had to give us free will in order for us to be able to do the good things like loving other people or developing virtue but without um, free will, there could be no love. However, if he does give us free will, we obviously have the choice where we can possibly sin. And we, in fact, use that choice regularly. That's one of five possible theological explanations for why the fall was allowed to happen, why evil was allowed to exist. There are four more on a PowerPoint. I encourage you to know at least two of these. Your choice. Finally, we move on to the attributes of the church, the doctrine of the church. We talked about the acronym ACHO, A-C-H-O, so missing one O there. The church is apostolic, Catholic, holy, and one. So there's a general sense that we can understand this. We are one because we're united. Catholic means present everywhere. Holy means set apart to be good. And apostolic means connected with the apostles. But Christians agree on those four attributes, but very much disagree on what they mean in practice. And so I discussed in my podcast lecture, and I have up on PowerPoint, several different interpretations, a Catholic interpretation, a joint Lutheran and Reformed one, and an Anabaptist one. These are very simplified. But I want each of you to pick one of these perspectives, your choice, take a look at the PowerPoint. And learn it for the final exam. A few vocabulary words on the church really quickly. We talked about the distinction between the church militant and the church triumphant. The church militant consists of Christians who are alive today and battling sin still, whereas the church triumphant refers to Christians who have died and gone to be with the Lord. In theology, when we speak about the church, we mean this entire group, militant and triumphant. We talked about the distinction between the visible and invisible church. A visible church is who you see that shows up on Sunday, but not everybody there may be truly joined to Christ. The invisible church refers to those who are truly joined to Christ, but we can't always know who they are, so they're, in a sense, invisible. Now, one of your essay questions is on the doctrine of the church, talking about division within the church due to ethical failures or theological disagreements. So, looking at different views of these four attributes would give you theological disagreements that have split the church. You could also talk about the doctrine of the sacraments, which is part of the doctrine of the church. I'll talk about it in a moment. Your other option, though, is to spend time writing on the discussion we had on the Catholicity of the church, where, despite the fact that in the last hundred years, the church, in terms of percentages, has become increasingly diverse as millions have converted in Africa and Asia, um, despite that fact, the church has also historically struggled with prejudice and racism and racial division. And we looked in particular at some problems with white North American Christianity in the last several hundred years, since that hits close to home for many of us. So you may also write on that discussion and those failures in that essay question. Okay, final lecture was on the doctrine of the sacraments. Recall that a sacrament needs four things to count as a sacrament, and I use the acronym SLAG. You need a sign, so something that represents something else. You need likeness. That sign can't be arbitrary. There has to be a genuine connection between what it is signifying and what it is. So the redness of wine and the redness of blood is a visual likeness there, but there's also imagery throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that links sacrifice with wine. Again, sign, likeness, the A refers to authorization. I can't just hop up and make a new sacrament. Someone with authority has to do so. For Protestants, that's usually thesis or the Bible. The Catholic Church allows a higher role for tradition here. Now, if you stop at those three, you accept what's known as an ordinance. That's the view of Anabaptists. But if you add a fourth step, you'll find yourself accepting a sacrament, and that is G, grace. So sign, likeness, authorization, and grace. If the sacrament, so baptism or the Lord's Supper, if that includes some special connection with grace, then you believe that those things are sacraments. Now, there are different views between the Lutheran and Reformed, between Anabaptists and Roman Catholics on these sacraments, such as the Eucharist, or Lord's Supper, as others call it. You need to know the basics of that, or you could go in further detail if you'd like to use that for your essay question on the Church. So, briefly summarizing, the Roman Catholic Church accepts a doctrine known as transubstantiation, According to this view, the substance of the bread, what it truly is, changes from bread into truly the flesh of Christ, even though the accidents or its circumstantial appearance remains the same. It'll like bread, smells like bread, and feels like bread, fortunately. So that's the Roman Catholic view. The Lutheran and Reformed view reject transubstantiation, but still believe that Christ is truly present somehow. This is known as real presence. And because he's truly there, there's a connection with grace. Anabaptists, on the other hand, say it's just bread. Christ is not specially present at all. All we are doing is remembering. And so their view is known as memorialism. And disputes over these views are one of the main reasons why the Christian church has split so much in the last several hundred years. That's all the content for the semester. I know it's pretty fast, and I know that there are questions, but I don't have the ability to take them here. Please try and make it to the Zoom session or the GroupMe session if you're able. If not, or even in addition to that, feel free to send me emails with questions. I'd also be happy to try and schedule something one-on-one if that would be helpful to you. All the best. Special thanks to those of you who made it through all the podcasts uh, this year. And I wish you all the best as you head into the exam.